The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I'm Matchmaker Maria, the founder of Agave Match. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions and interview experts to give you the tools to find or keep the love of your life. This is Ask a Matchmaker. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria, and this week's guest is Sarah Levy. Sarah is a writer and the author of Drinking Games, a memoir in essays that explores the role alcohol has in our formative years and what it means to opt out of a culture completely enmeshed in drinking. Drinking Games was named a most anticipated book by Good Morning America, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Post, BuzzFeed, Apple Books, and Pure Out, and has been featured in the best of lifts by Glamour, Goodreads, and more. You've probably seen me, if you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me connect to this book. I'm always promoting it. Every time someone asks me about being sober or dating sober, I think this is such a fantastic book that you absolutely should read. The link is in the show notes. Sarah, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you, Maria. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, I started seeing your writing. Uh, it was featured in like The Cut, right? Yes, that's right. That was actually my first freelance essay that I ever placed was with The Cut. What was the essay about? It was about dating without alcohol. So right up your alley right. and how it the experience made me feel like an awkward teenager again, even though I was 28, 29 <laughs> at the time. All right, let's take a step back. So where are we in the landscape of Sarah Levy's life Uh before the book, before you even start writing these collection of essays? Yeah. So I got sober four days after my 28th birthday. I was living in New York city, working in marketing. I was single, dating a lot, going out with my friends. And I just reached a point with my drinking where I knew that if I wanted to get to the place in my life that I always envisioned myself in. What place was that? fulfilled with my relationships, proud of the way that I showed up as a friend, an employee, um, someone who had self-esteem, someone who wasn't waking up Saturday morning next to a stranger feeling like, who is this person? I didn't want to do this, you know, just constant shame, anxiety, regret. Um, I knew that if I, you know, I, 
for a long time, I told myself that it would just sort of magically work itself out that one day I would meet the perfect guy and get married and have kids. And I would just stop drinking. And I just had this moment where I realized, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. And alcohol was the common denominator in a lot of my problems. I've often just felt so out of control after a night of drinking. And so at 28, I decided to get sober. You just said that you would think that when I get married and have kids, I would stop drinking. Mm -hmm. It seems like drinking is like a bad, like a bad boyfriend you're trying to break up with. Like I've like, and just to share here, I've personally never thought to myself, well, once I get married and have kids, I'll stop doing this one vice. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kind of relationship did we have with drinking for that to be such a main character of like, well, when this thing happens, I'm going to get rid of it. Yeah. I was a blackout drinker. I loved to party. I loved to go out, you know, have a few drinks with my friends, but I would reach a point in the night where, you know, my, the rest of my friends were maybe switching to water or calling Ubers, getting ready to go home. And I would just want more. I would want to stay out longer and drink. When you more. say blackout drinker, cause I'm thinking of like John Mulaney now, that's mm-hmm. like my introduction to that sort of term. Yeah. Is that like, do you remember? So for blackout drinkers, there's, they're not passed out. They're not asleep. They're still conscious, right. but they're not forming any short-term memories. They have so much alcohol in their bloodstream and in their brain that they're not able to process and store new information. So are your friends aware that like, not always, it looks like the lights are on and, you know, I would be taking pictures, ordering drinks, carrying on conversations. I knew my name. I knew what I did for work. I knew where I lived. Like I could get myself home, but I would, my tell my friends would, would say was that I often would ask the same question over and over again. Like, where are we going next? Or if I had just met someone, I would ask them their name 15 times, or I would ask them what their job was. And they would be like, we just talked about this. It's like Dory and finding Nemo. Like I couldn't retain new information once I was in a blackout state. And so in terms of like, when I get married and have kids, I'll stop doing this you know, I would wake up the morning after a blackout really hungover and just feeling really embarrassed of, you know, or ashamed about what I had done or said the night before. I often got into fights with people or, you know, was really defensive, sloppy, whatever. And so I would think to myself, like, I don't know what this will look like with a family, you know, of my own one day, but I'm sure I'll just figure it out by then. I'm sure that once I'm a grown up, quote unquote, like sure. I will have miraculously figured out. Were you I, dating one now at this time when you were thinking this? I was casually dating, but I didn't have like a serious boyfriend or anything. Okay. Okay. I mean, cause it's a lot, right? If you're telling me that at a certain moment in the night, we're turning into finding Dory, you know, there's, there's a lot there to unpack with a guy that you're dating. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had a serious boyfriend in college, but when I graduated college and moved to New York, I had a really hard time forming intimate connections with new people, specifically men. And so I did a lot of casual dating and, you know, participating in hookup culture. Um, But I think my drinking made it hard for me to 
really go deep with someone probably because when we would be like on a date or, you know, in those early stages of getting to know each other, I was often drinking pretty heavily, relying on alcohol as, you know, a social lubricant. And I don't know what it would be like to be on the other side of a date with a person who is in a blackout or can't really remember what we talked about two dates ago because of their drinking. I am now having an existential crisis where I am realizing someone I dated very seriously would black out Mm. like this now. I didn't realize that there was a term for it, but I remember the lights were on. Yeah. The next day I'd be like, you don't remember that? Like, and it would, it happened. So I just figured, okay, maybe he's just sleep deprived. I don't know. I was making excuses, even though yeah. alcohol was very much a part of those interactions. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, I'll make those excuses. I made those excuses. You would think, you know, if this happened to you once, twice, three times, it's scary. You wake up somewhere. You don't want to know the person that you're with. You want to change your behavior. Like, but when you're in it and everyone around you is drinking all the time. You know, I didn't know anyone who was sober. I didn't really understand that not everyone blacked out when they drank. Right. right. So it, I made a lot of excuses for, for it, even in myself. Right. And I'm realizing that I made excuses for that person experiencing it. Like mm-hmm. uh, of like what my perception was, I was like, Oh, he's just having a bad day. That's why he's mm-hmm. acting a little more catatonic mm-hmm. when really, uh, I think we're having a finding Dory moment here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so then, so, okay. It's four days after you turn 28, uh, you decide to make a, de- you, you make a decision, mm-hmm. which is to become sober or sober curious. Like how did we come to terms with that? So throughout my twenties, I would dabble with sober curiosity. You know, I would have a really bad night or a really bad hangover and it would sort of push me to take a week or a month off of drinking. And then I would always resume drinking again. Um, and it was really uncomfortable for me to attempt to moderate my drinking. Like there would be nights where I would have two drinks and those nights were really hard for me. I was so obsessed with how soon I was going to be able to have my next drink and how much everyone around me was drinking. And it took all the fun and enjoyment out of what drinking is, I guess, supposed to be for normal people, normal drinkers. Um, So I had that kind of research under my belt and this time around, you know, I woke up on a Saturday morning, really hungover, missed my workout class that I had already paid for, feeling so sick and tired of the same, you know, 48 hours spent on my couch, ordering takeout, watching TV, just feeling worthless. And um, I kind of knew in that moment, you know, what I've tried previously hasn't worked. So I think I need to stop altogether. And I didn't put a timeline on it. I didn't say I'll never drink again. That's just way too overwhelming. I still really don't think in those terms. Um, but I did commit to being honest with people in my life about this decision, which I had never done before. I always, when I had attempted not to drink in the past, I didn't tell anyone, you know, I was still going out, still hanging out with all the same people ordering 
seltzer and telling people it was a vodka soda. Like I was very ashamed. And this time around, I was honest with my therapist and, you know, through having conversations with people that I felt safe with, was able to eventually say, this this isn't just like I'm taking a break from drinking. I, I need to really look into sobriety. And this was four days after you turned 28? Yes. Wow. And what was, I mean, I think it's, I mean, from what I understand, and you'll have to educate me, um, this is, this is now your, is it a lifestyle or a mindset? Like this is something that's always a part of you, right? I'm assuming, you know, you think about this, right? Like you have to actively be sober. Yeah, I definitely think about my sobriety every single day. It's not that I think about drinking every day. Right. The desire to drink was like totally lifted for me after my life started to radically improve without alcohol. But I do think about being in recovery and, and likely will for, you know, the rest of my life. Okay. So what did you, what steps did you take to, um, to practice sobriety. I'm pronouncing that wrong. I'm sorry. (laughs) So first I had a conversation with my therapist. That was really the first step for me. Um, and I also knew, like I said, that it hadn't worked for me previously when I tried to do it alone. So I did explore sober community and that's different for everyone. Some people find 12 step programs. Some people find support online, Um, I reached out to a few people that I knew were like friends of friends of friends who I had heard from the, you know, through the grapevine that they didn't drink. I got coffee with them and little by little, I started connecting with other people, mostly young women who also didn't drink. And that was a game changer for me because I really didn't have any examples or close friends, um, who were around my age, living in a big city, dating, working and doing it all sober. And so as I started to connect with other women in their twenties and thirties, who were kind of in the same life stage that I was in, but had also decided to get sober, I felt so much less alone. And that made a huge difference for me. And they gave me suggestions. You know, they told me to take things one day at a time. I remember being so overwhelmed at the thought of, and you'll appreciate this as a matchmaker, I was so overwhelmed at the thought of um, being sober and not drinking at my wedding one day. And I remember talking to another sober girl about it and she was like, oh, do you have a fiance? Like, are you engaged? Are you planning a wedding? And I was like, no. She was like, oh, do you have a boyfriend? I was like, no. And she was like, got it. Okay. So like the wedding, just probably not a priority right now, like not something to worry about and like, just take it one day at a time until then. Um, and I mean, yeah, four years later I got married sober and the thought of drinking was like the last thing on my mind, but yeah, just simple suggestions like that one, you know, to like, not worry about that right now, take it one day at a time. Um, yeah. Don't was- mourn something that isn't even developed from mourning. Exactly. Cause I think that's what you may have been engaging in. It's like this grief mm. over a fantasy that like, you don't even know who the characters are in that memory you think you're going to make. Totally. I would describe it exactly like that. I grieved the idea of m- my relationship with alcohol 
past, present and future. Mm-hmm. And so much of that was fantasy, right? Yeah. Because the reality of like me drinking at my wedding would have been really sloppy, probably blacking out, not remembering the reception, maybe throwing up on my dress by the end of the night, right? Like that is what my drinking looks like and looked like. The fantasy was- the toast. And we'll be able to have that perfect champagne toast and- Did you still have a toast though with like- of course. Cider or whatever. Yeah. People guessed some champagne. I had sparkling cider. Fantasy like, happened then. Great. Yeah. And <laughs> like it was just you should not- be Sarah, you should be like super proud of yourself right now, by the way. Thank like you. Like you just said, you just like described the fantasy, right? Then you described what reality would be like if the fantasy went out the way you thought it would play out. But then your actual reality is the original fantasy, which is you just wanted a wedding toast. Mm. It wasn't about like drinking. It was about the moment. Exactly. And that's always, I was always trying to be like in the moment and drinking would take me outside of it. Ultimately, you know, like what I was really searching for was connection, belonging, love, identity, you know, and, and I always felt like drinking would allow me to be in the middle and be a part of And it ultimately kept me isolated and separate because of the way that I drank and like the place that my drinking took me to. So tell me about, you know, you, you've, you've, you've started your sober journey. Tell me how your dating life shifts now that you're being, you know, you're practicing being sober. Is that how I say, do you practice being sober? I don't know. It's like practicing medicine. Yeah. Getting sober, being sober. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, I was living in New York and all I did on dates was go out to drinks. I mean, that was the only mm-hmm. thing that you did on a first or second date. So, I mean, that's still a really popular thing to do on dates. Yeah. 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 And I mean, occasionally I would say like, let's get coffee, but by and large, my first dates, even with my now husband were over drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially I didn't tell anyone that I was, I I didn't tell any prospective dates that I was sober. I would make plans and show up at a bar and then like order a diet Coke or a seltzer. And I was so nervous to do that. And so scared of the reaction that I would get. And, um, it ended up like being a good test that I gave myself because it ended up, it was a little awkward to just show up and order a seltzer and not give any context going into it that I didn't drink. I did get some like mixed reactions on those early dates. Tell me what you were scared of. I was afraid of being judged and afraid that, you know, I, I approached dating in my twenties, like a job interview. Like I wanted them to pick me. I wanted to get chosen to like advance to the next round. And I was afraid that if they knew I didn't drink, they wouldn't even want to go on that first date. And then once they knew I would have like, like points would be docked from my score. Like they would think I wasn't a viable option as like a girlfriend or a perspective partner, or they would think they would be embarrassed to introduce me to their friends or their family. Right. And I still had this connotation of with sobriety, this like stigma that if you were sober, it meant that you're, you had hit this crazy rock bottom and that you were 
it always going to be in danger of drinking again. And right. That it was like a very messy situation. And I was really scared of having that label put on me. So you were scared of being stigmatized as an addict Mm -hmm. and you were scared that people would be scared that you could relapse Mm -hmm. and then they would be dating someone or married to someone who has a different kind of relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Than they want to. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so on my early sober dates, I didn't have the confidence to say, I don't drink, you know, just, Hey, by the way, I would love to meet for a diet Coke, like, but I don't drink. So those early dates, those interactions were awkward because I was awkward. I was not owning it and I wasn't confident in, in my sobriety. And so we would have like, I remember one day a guy was like, wait, you're not drinking, like what's going on. And I was sort of like, yeah, it's been making me feel anxious recently. I'm just taking a break. Um, and he was like, what about just like sangria or something like just, or straight tequila. Like he was like troubleshooting and like giving me like alternatives. Sir, these, these are very different options between them, by the way. Like what about tequila versus sangria? I just want to say really quick, uh, for anyone listening, if I sound like I'm not pronouncing words correctly today, it's because I just had a root canal right before the recording. Half of my face is numb. (laughs) The way when you said, when you said sangria and then tequila, um, holy shit that I feel my tooth, like, oh, it like really caught, like it caused like a muscle spasm of like, how are these the options of his troubleshooting? Oh my God. That was, that was hilarious. Although you can't see me laugh. Cause I'm so numb. Keep going, Sarah. That yeah, was just, laugh, I'm like, I'm laugh. crying over here. It's <laughs> like, that's just like, the, it's like, those were his go-to. Those were his two, like, straight tequila. Yeah. just have straight tequila. Like you won't get as bad of a hangover or whatever. And, um, so, so like those conversations were awkward, but like I said, that, that was good. Um, that was good practice for me because then mm-hmm going into dates in like month three or four of my sobriety, I had kind of developed a different approach where I would tell these perspective dates ahead of time, like over text or on the app, by the way, I don't drink. Um, and you know, it filtered some dates out some dates, a couple of guys stopped responding, which totally fine. Those weren't like the the people for me. Um, Others were like, oh, cool. Like I'm actually trying to cut back a little bit too. Um, and then some other people like were just like, okay, great. And didn't ask about it. And then once we were face-to-face and in person, I ordered my mocktail or my diet Coke, whatever. And it wasn't even a conversation. So I like developed that strategy early on that I would just tell people ahead of time to avoid the awkward in-person conversation. The guys that you're doing this awkward dance with, these are all guys that you're meeting on apps? Pretty much. I had a couple of setups, like friends of friends, um, and then the rest were apps. Yeah. How were those conversations when you met people through friends? Uh, sangria slash tequila guy was a, someone that I met through a friend, funnily enough. Um, the others were totally fine. Like one of them I remember was on his own like fitness wellness journey. And so we got coffee instead of going to a bar and 
that, that was fine. Um, and in general, I, I tried, especially on those first couple of dates, not to get too deep into why I was not drinking. I kept it light, like pretty intentionally light because I just was like, I don't know you yet. I don't owe you my whole life story. And I didn't want to spend a bulk of a first date with someone being like, well, like once I start drinking, it's really hard for me to stop, you know? So I would just kind of intentionally be vague about it and be like, I'm just sleeping better without it. It was making me kind of anxious and I feel more productive, whatever. And um, as I got to know someone and felt more comfortable with them, I would get, you know, if they had questions, I would go deeper into like why I had made this decision. How far uh, into this now do we then meet um, your now husband? Adam. Um, Adam. (laughs) I met Adam when I had a year and a half sober. So yes, it was like the, it was the following uh, winter. Tell me about that. Yeah. So Adam and I were introduced through a mutual friend and she, to her credit, just thought that we would get along, I think based on our, um, like astrology signs actually, because her grandparents were a cancer in Virgo, which is what we are. Um, and it was like a very casual run in that I had with her. Um, and she, you know, we were sort of chatting about my dating life and if I was seeing anyone and she was just like, you know, I know this guy, I think that you would really hit it off. And like, would you be open to meeting him? And, um, the only caveat was that he was living in Los Angeles and I was still in New York. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but, but he traveled to New York a lot for work and I was like, yeah, I'm open to that. Like I have a lot going on. I'm busy wouldn't be the worst thing to only have like a couple weeks a month with a guy that I'm seeing, you know? So I didn't say no. And, uh, she gave him my phone number and we started texting and we How met. soon did he text you after he got your number? Um, I ran into her on a Saturday and I think he texted me that Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. That's pretty critical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, um... we texted for, Maybe like we texted for like a, we had a good first text conversation. I think the banter, I remember the banter was there and the conversation really flowed that first night that he texted me. We were like chatting for maybe an hour. It was like a nice conversation. And then I was very much like, I don't want a pen pal. Like, let me know when you're in New York. Um, Hashtag no more pen pals. Yeah. Like I was like, I don't need just like a text buddy. Also, I had had things with guys on apps where we would text for a while and I would get really excited and then we would meet and there was just like no chemistry. So I just didn't want to waste my time in that way. Um, And he had plans to come to New York like three weeks later. And so he followed up as it got closer and asked me out for- um, That's the smart way to do it because what you just said before is actually something that happens a lot. I think people have these texting relationships with people online or even through a friend and you talk too much, Mm -hmm. like over, let's say a week. And I don't mean like the first day, like the first day is fine because you're creating that report. You're creating like kind of like that foundation. But then if you talk every single day for a few hours, you accidentally fall in love with this expectation. Yes. 
then you meet reality, which expectation will never meet reality, which is why I always tell people, like, if you're going to online date, you have to be able to see them in the next five days. Otherwise Mm -hmm. you're just going to be messaging someone. You're going to, expectations are going to like skyrocket. I think this strategy where, okay, we had a, we texted a lot for an hour, then we cooled off. And then, you know, three weeks later, he, you know, checked back in. Like, I think that's the, that's the formula, right. Where you can't see each other, like to just not make those expectations, you know, reach the sky. You know, it doesn't matter how great reality is. You're just not gonna, it's just not gonna latch. I, and that's exactly what it is. Like you fall in love with the idea of someone totally. and I just remember thinking because our first text conversation was so good, mm. I really wanted to be careful and not have these outlandish expectations and then ultimately be disappointed. Right. And I remember thinking, and and to be totally honest, like our first date was awesome. And afterwards I remember thinking like, okay, this is too good to be true. Like this guy is too nice. Like I was still worried about falling in love with the idea of someone. Um, so I do think that having those boundaries early on are really important because it gives you time in between the conversation and the date to kind of percolate on like, well, how did I feel when I was with them? And is it just that I like the attention or do I really like this person? You know, like, I I think it's really hard to figure out how you feel about someone when you're just being like inundated with contact so early on. So, um, how long before, by the way, before we keep talking about Adam and your relationship, have you ever heard, I don't really believe in astrology, but since you mentioned it, yeah. Um, this has happened to me. So I want to know if you've learned about it, but have you ever heard of this thing called Saturn's return? I have. Yes. It's like when you're 27, 28. Yeah. So like, I remember the day before my birthday, my friend Bianca, shout out to Bianca. Um, she was like, let's go for drinks. You know? And I was like, okay, we're just going to like pre-celebrate my birthday. And she really believes in astrology. She's like, Maria, tomorrow is your Saturn's return. And that means that like, you know, major things are going to be happening to in the next two years. And this is the time to manifest. So essentially it's called Saturn's return because Saturn takes like 28 years to like do a whole orbit around the sun. Mm-hmm. So it's like 28 years. So every 28 years, something, I don't know, you can use the pattern, the power of Saturn to like manifest the kind of life that you want, whatever. I don't know. So I was like, okay, like, I don't know if I believe in this, but let's just pretend. And, um, the next day, you know, when I turned 28, I wrote this thing called my manifest, which is, uh, which is something that I teach. It's part of uh, my Agape intensive program where I help people fix their pickers and like kind of reset their dating mindset and then create their manifest. And, um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to do mine. Like I was already teaching this. I was like, I'm going to do mine. I'm turning 28. I should do it now. And I wrote down all the things I wanted in a man. And then I reached out. I've said this before to like uh, my friends, but I mean, I think everyone knows this, but I reached out to like the two guys I knew that could probably f- be friends with the guy that I've written about in this manifest. Mm. So I was like, I'm meeting him in this Saturn's return. Like this is, this is happening right now. Yeah. And, um, and I met him nine days later and I didn't know it was going to be my husband, but I remember like that weekend thinking like, cause we had gone on a couple dates in a matter of four days. Um, I was thinking like, oh, this, this guy's different. Mm-hmm. I think, I think this Saturday, and then he went to Greece for Christmas to go see his parents. And like, by the time he had come back, 
we were boyfriend and girlfriend. I was ready to introduce me to my parents. Like we were already like thinking like, okay, this is, this is something special. Let's just keep, let's keep dating to confirm it. But this is certainly something that's future. And um, I was like, wait, maybe the Saturn's return has something to it, you know? And, wow. and Saturn's return lasts like two to three years. So like two years and two months later, he proposed and um, we got married a year after that. And uh, anyway, so while you're saying your story, you're like 28 years and four days. I was like, oh, Saturn's return. And in those two years, she met Adam. So like, wow. You know, no one has ever mentioned that. And I write about like kind of my version of your manifest in my book, Mm -hmm. which was a manifestation workshop that I attended. Tell me more about this. Don't, don't glaze over this. This is like, I love stuff like this. This is like the one woo woo thing I believe in, which is like manifest. Okay. I have like an entire coaching program to I'm taking 37 women to Greece next week, the Island of Zelos to release their manifests at the temple of Artemis. Like like, I'm obsessed with this. This is the one woo woo thing I believe in. So tell me about your essay about manifesting. It really, really works. And I'm with you. I don't know a lot about astrology um, to your point and really thought that like manifestation was just this like woo woo thing. And that it was someone saying like, I want a million dollars and then like to come to them. And it's so not that. So um, one week before I ran into the friend who set Mm -hmm. me up with Adam. Mm -hmm. I went to this manifestation workshop in Brooklyn through no, it was like a series of coincidences that led to me going there. My boss at the time had been invited and she couldn't make it. And she asked me to go. And, um, I was like in a place of saying yes to things, or maybe it was a friend who had invited me. I actually can't remember now, but I didn't, someone told me about it at the last minute. And as part of the workshop, we were guided through a meditation where we were like envisioning our lives, our ideal selves five years into the future. Um, and I just envisioned like myself in a loving relationship and working as a writer at the time I was still working in marketing. So it was like a completely different life path. I didn't see myself living in New York at the time I had no plan of leaving. Um, and you know, I wrote out this whole, after the, the meditation, we were supposed to journal about everything. And I wrote out this whole thing, um, about the way that relationship felt and where I envisioned myself, like really specific details. And, um, a week later I ran into my friend and she mentioned Adam and it sort of set everything in motion. Um, and it's almost five years to the day of that workshop. And, I mean, I envisioned myself as a published author. I envisioned myself married. I envisioned myself like it was, it was crazy. All the, the, the level of detail. Um, but I love what you mentioned also about Saturn return. And I think, yeah, I think, um, a lot of the work that I had done, like whatever label you put on it, a lot of the work I had done in that first year sober allowed me to let like let go of some of my limiting beliefs and adjust my picker because I think I was really looking at the wrong things when I was thinking about perspective partners. Mm-hmm. And by the time I met Adam, I was just open. I mean, I just, for example, I wouldn't have said yes to dating, to talking to someone who lived on the other side of the country. Right. I would just, would have just been like, that's not practical. Like, no, what's the point of that? I won't, you know, I wouldn't have said yes to someone who was not 5'10", 5'11". Like 
Adam's five, nine, who cares? Sarah, how tall are you? Five, four. Like why like, is height even in your radar? Right. Like my you could hand- literally wear, like, I mean, do you have, do you have, do you have, is, do you have I children? Don't- I'm pregnant actually with my you're first. Pregnant? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. Are you like, you're not officially announcing it here. Are you? Do people no, know I've already announced it. Okay. God, thank God. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is going to be all, like really hilarious. Um, first of all, congratulations. Second thank of all, you. did you know that you're going to not wear the heels that you have like ever again, because your foot grows, um, half totally. a size or to a size. Like I used to be a size 11. I'm a size 12 now. Wow. Like sometimes I'm an 11 and a half, but there are no brands that have 11 and a half. So I buy a size 12 and I put like those little heel blockers. Yeah. It turns into an 11 and a half. And, uh, like every time people say to me, like, well, I want to wear any heel I want. I'm like, first of all, the heels that you own, if you decide to have kids, you're never going to ever wear again. A yeah. and then B, um, like what makes you think you're going to be wearing heels the way you think you're going to, I mean, I wear wedges every day. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like running after kids. Like it's not the same relationship that I have with shoes. I also love sneakers and being comfortable. Like yeah. I live in my sneakers, my Birkenstocks, whatever. So it's like, who do I think I am? I have this idea that I need to be wearing stilettos and that and like still, part- you said he's five foot nine. Yeah. He's still five inches taller than you. Like what kind of hooker heels are you wearing? Like I hundred percent, I get and so like, that was, like upset. And my, my hinge profile, like my bumble settings, all of my apps, I wouldn't even, I had it set to five ten and above. Oh my so God. he wouldn't have even come up on my dating There's app. Ships sailing in the sea. I mean, forget the fact that he was in a different city, which by the way, like it's such a testament to like, sometimes people ask me like, you know, what city should I move to? And I'm like, why don't you just import them? Cause like Sarah, you imported a man from LA. Um, I, I imported a man from Boston. Like right. I didn't have to move to Boston. I just had to be open. I also right. have to listen. You also have to have the flexibility of time and the flexibility of like the privilege of money. Like it was not cheap yeah. to have two separate, forget the courting of going back and forth. Eventually you have two rents. Mm-hmm. That's what it turns into. We did that for the first year. Um, and, and I think similar to your experience with your husband, like once we went on that first date and then we went out again while he was in town, he was in New York for about a week. It was pretty clear after those first couple of dates that like there, this, there was something there, this was special. Um, but we didn't want to move too fast. And, and so for the next about like a year, we were really back and forth. He had his place in LA. I had my place in New York. Um, and yeah, so that's like two rents and flights and going back and forth. Don't, don't get me wrong. What I mean, when I say two rents, I don't mean like I have a, I don't know how you feel about this and this is not personal to you, but like, I have a strict, like don't move in if you don't have a ring sort of policy. Mm. What I mean is like my husband and I, we had long distance for such a long time that we got married because he was focused on his career. I was focused on mine and we just could not combine our households yet. So like we just had two rents, uh, even while I was pregnant, Mm. even with our first child, his first 10 months, Wow, uh, because George could not leave. Like George was in Boston Monday through Thursday. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, like Monday morning he would leave, you know, where we were. And then he'd go to Boston. And then on Thursday night, he would be back home. So like half the week, where's he going to stay? Not in a hotel in Boston. And that's like $400 a night. Right. So, right. Yeah. 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 It gets expensive. Yeah. 
yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think I entered that relationship thinking I'd be long distance that long. I thought it would be done by like a year. And for us, the pandemic ended up happening when we yeah. had been together for a little over a year. So I did end up moving to Los Angeles. And Is that where you live now? That's where we live now. Yes. Do you like living in Los Angeles? I do. Yeah. I think that it ended up being the perfect place for us. And now thinking about like our growing family, um, I don't know what it would have looked like to, to still be in New York. And, um, spe- I mean, we were living in Brooklyn at the time or I was, but, um, yeah. Is now it we- easier being sober in LA? Um, since you have to I drive think- and all. Yeah, definitely. People have to think about driving. I think LA is very health conscious, right? Like that stereotype is true where people wake mm-hmm. up early, they go on hikes. Um, <laughs> yeah, disgusting. The farmer's market, you know? And so I do think that you, um, there are a lot of people here who are sober curious or who just like don't drink as much. And I think also it has to do with the stage of life in which I moved here. I'm 33 now. A lot of our friends are also, you know, married or they have kids. So they're doing different things. I'm sure that, you know, if you live here in your twenties, which is when I lived in New York, there's a different culture as well of people partying and nightlife. I mean, now you're uh, pregnant too. You're not, and I'm I mean, I will say though, my favorite mocktail, I still drink it to this day, which was, um, a pineapple with seltzer. Like, Oh, oh my God. That is like in line, there's, like a lime on top. There's a, um, pineapple spindrift flavor, which is that it's like fresh pineapple juice and seltzer. Yeah. It's amazing. That's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I'm, uh, it's, it's interesting how much, um, I am. So let, let's give some stats. Let's go, let's take it back to dating and sobriety. And of course, like the essays, cause I do want to ask like, which of the essays was the easiest to write and which one was the hardest to write, but let's talk really quick for a second. Right now there is a sober dating app called lucid. So hmm. just to like clarify, like sobriety, I cannot say this with a swollen mouth, um, <laughs> is increasing, uh, Tinder's study shows that, uh, the trends for dating sober, um, has heavily increased, uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and we see that even on online dating apps, like OKCupid and Hinge, they have an option where you can share your drinking status. I believe Hinge, I mean, I know Hinge has that, but I think there's like a sober badge on Bumble. So mm-hmm. you can also just, you know, proudly display this preference. Uh, and then on Bumble and Hinge, you have the option to filter out those who do drink too, uh, I think through a paid subscription. So there is this dating trend where people are embracing being sober or drinking less. Um, and I think that there's like in having read like a lot of studies, not just dating focused, but just generally speaking, um, you know, drinking does a lot of damage to your body and you don't even have to abuse the substance. Uh, it's really bad. I remember once reading a study where it was like, it was better to smoke marijuana Mm. than to, to drink alcohol. And, um, And I just found that like, I, yeah, I was like, wow, like that's crazy that like, yeah. So, um, so tell me a little bit more to take it back to, you know, your dating journey. I want to know the following questions. I want to know first off how, when you told Adam, how did he react? So speaking of Adam, he's just 
in the background. I, I, I saw a ghost of a man. I, I can't see his face because it's she's got the blurry background, but I saw the ghost of a man walk past. He's grabbing something and then it's healthy. all good. Don't worry. So I told Adam that I didn't drink before our first date um, in that okay. first text conversation. And um, so he knew going into our first date that like I, I was sober. Um, he didn't really asked me a lot about it until we had been together. We had gone on like a couple of dates. Um, and honestly, he was really like supportive right off the bat. He was curious. And I think at that point, you know, I had celebrated a year sober. It was a milestone that I was really proud of. I think that my confidence and he has said this too, was attractive to him. Um, and, and in, you know, being, it was something that I was really proud of at that time. And so I think that was just like cool to him. Um, and you know, his impression, I think of sobriety previously was that it was kind of like an elephant in the room and something that you didn't really talk about. Um, yeah. So he kind of, I think took my lead and was just like, okay, cool. Good for you. This is, you know, this is something that you do and, um, for your mental health and, and, and also, I had this big life, right? Like I wasn't just going out for drinks and then sitting on my couch. Like in the the year that I had spent being sober, I had kind of cultivated interests and I had deeper friendships. And so I had a lot going on. And I think that was attractive to him also. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when, how did he, you know, you're collecting all these essays throughout your relationship. Um, I'm assuming he was like supportive in your book journey. Extremely supportive. I remember telling Adam very early on that I wanted to be a writer and I was still working in marketing full time. And he was like, it immediately thinking like of other freelance essays that I could write and just thought that it was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And see, um, this is what I keep telling women. Like, you know, the, it's the right guy when he becomes like the CMO of your life. Like if he is not your chief marketing officer trying to come up with ways to like show, like just be your cheerleader and like show you the opportunities that you can also embrace in your life. Like I constantly say to people, like my husband is my CMO. I said this to like a a woman yesterday, um, during an intensive, I was like, you know, he's the guy. If you would hire him as your chief marketing officer to your life. I love that. That So yeah. Like the fact that he did that for you, that's, you met your CMO. Like that's it. I did. I did. And I feel like he was the first person I met who wasn't like, I mean, he's an entrepreneur. He had started his own company at that time. And he was the first person I met who was really like, yeah, you can do this. You could write a book. Mm-hmm. You know, previously I would tell people like, I really want to write a book one day, or I want to be a writer. And the response would be like, yeah, that like, doesn't everyone, or how does a writer make money or right? Just uh, people in my life were more focused on like a practical path forward. And, um, with Adam, he just was like, yeah, what, like, what could the book be like? And, and was always so supportive of the freelance essays that I was working on. And, um, even if it meant that I was writing about him, he, you know, he was like down for, for whatever. That's awesome. So which essay of all, how many essays are in your book? Oh, I should know that. Um, that's a good question. I want to say like 12, and which one was the easiest to write? 
Um, probably the last one where I write about manifestation and my experiences, I write about my wedding and, um, and my experience with manifestation, that was a really cool one to write and kind of look back on how far I had come. But to be honest, like once I started writing the book, it was such a cathartic experience. They were all really therapeutic to, to write. Was there any, um, essay that was really hard to like work through? I mean, the, the essays where I talk about things I did in blackouts, or at least what I remember of them. Um, and, you know, experiences that I had scary nights, you know, drinking and waking up in the hospital. Those were hard because I remember thinking a lot about like what my parents' experience was going to be reading those. Um, and, you know, it was just kind of hard to revisit some of those experiences. Now that you mentioned your parents, how did they react when they got your book uh, in their hands and they read your journey and all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, so I think so proud, so supportive. Um, Again, like it had always been a dream of mine to write a book. So I think for them, like seeing a book with my name on it and, and seeing that I had actually like done it was they were so proud and are so proud. They did get early copies of the manuscript before it was published. So they knew everything that was in the book before it went to print. And we had conversations about, you know, some, some sections of the book before things that they didn't know about things that happened that they didn't know at the time. Um, we had talked about that. Yeah, it's tough. So do you feel like, um, do you feel like you are a product of like millennial culture with your relationship to drinking and now your relationship to having this sort of sober lifestyle? I do. You know, I think for me, millennial culture always looked like work hard, play hard. We were the first generation to really grow up first without social media and then with. So we're, I think the last generation to kind of remember what that looks like. I didn't get Facebook until I was 16. So I went from having like flirtations and conversations and away messages to being online and having an online persona. And so I think that experience very much shaped the way that I drank and felt like I needed to be perfect on the outside, Mm -hmm. regardless of what was really going on inside. Um, I think not to like completely stereotype Gen Z, but I do think that they've come of age in a time where we talk much more openly about mental health. A lot of research is showing that Gen Z drinks less than. Oh yeah. It's like insane how much less. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I do think that the culture that I grew up in very much informed the way that I drank. And I, I feel like it was also glamorized a lot by like the things that taught this, I mean, all generations, you kind of taught your experience with alcohol, uh, through, you know, media mm-hmm. and TV and all that stuff. So it's, yeah. And it's interesting. Cause like Gen Z, they, I mean, maybe they're drinking less, but they're doing other things that, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that's there's true. other vices that have taken over. That's um, true too. And that's interesting, right. To think about like the, the things that I grew up on, right. Like the OC or, gossip girl, right? Like that was my impression of like being cool and drinking. And now for Gen Z, it's like euphoria, which is next level. You know, like I couldn't have even imagined that being my, what I looked to as like an example of high school dynamics when I was 
13 or 14. So I think, yeah, they might be drinking less, but they're exposed to a lot more, um, which is just interesting. It's funny for you. It's those, we're only, we're only like five years apart, but, um, for you, YouTube and Wikipedia existed when you were in high school. Yes. For me, it existed in college. So like, I remember buying a digital camera for $700 because I was the cheapest one when I was a senior in high school as like a gift to my, you know, that was like the gift that I got for graduating. Um, the gift, like my parents, like I won some, uh, award for $500 at school. And I asked my parents for $200. I was like, Oh, I'm going to, and that's, I'm going to get a digital camera. And like, yeah. you know, there was nowhere to post these photos. Like right. I think Flickr was about to get invented or something. And, um, you know, uh, I was like halfway through my college experience when Facebook came out and for me, like it was watching sex in the city Mm -hmm. and that relationship that they have with like fruity drinks. Oh my God. Yeah. The Cosmo. Right. The Cosmo and, um, the Manhattan. Well, and yeah. And what was kind of like expected of like, if you want to meet a guy, you go out, you get a drink and then yeah. you come on to them essentially. Like it was, uh, it was like a whole other, yeah. uh, sort of lesson. I remember watching the OC and thinking I was like, a, I think a junior or senior in college. And I remember thinking like, I never saw gossip girl. It just, it just missed me. Uh, mm-hmm. it just wasn't playing where I lived at the time. So just, um, but I remember watching the OC thinking like, okay, they drink more beer, so then I started experimenting, like experimenting, I started drinking beer a couple of years after. So it's like funny. I started with the Cosmos. Yeah. And then headed over to beer in my mid twenties. Um, yeah. And I just like, stop. I mean, I don't drink that much. I drink maybe, maybe like one or two drinks a month. Oh, wow. I don't, I don't know what happened. I think the pandemic happened. I think having a baby during the pandemic in the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. it just like locked in like you're just not going to drink anymore. I think it went one way or the other for a lot of people in the pandemic. I think some people really re-examined their relationship with alcohol and were just like, at this point I'm drinking alone or couch. Um, and then other people, I think really continued to do that or revved up their alcohol consumption because of how stressed and scared everyone was at the time. And so, I have, I have heard that, that people either drink a lot less coming out of the pandemic or started drinking way more for That's me. Right. If I hadn't been sober going into the pandemic, I have no doubt that I would have been drinking more. My husband drinks, um, a really smoky scotch every night, like lack of bullet or something. And like every night, like he has his one shot before he goes, not well, like most nights he has his one shot and goes to bed, whatever. And I remember being pregnant with both kids and like, I just had an, a, like a reaction to him drinking that where he would drink it from like a, a kid's like, sippy cup. Ooh, I, I needed a cover on it and I could still yeah. smell it. I was like, go to the bathroom. I can't like, it's too much. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't know. It was just, uh, it was very interesting to kind of watch that relationship with alcohol really dwindle. And uh, I still like a cocktail, but it's just not, it's not, I have to be with people. And so yeah. I really appreciate your perspective because I think it's a perspective that a lot of people have too. Just like, I think, like, I think there, there's a lot of people who have your perspective. And there's a lot of people who have my perspective. And it's so interesting to hear just to kind of like compare a little bit because we're still at the same place later on too. You know what I mean? Which is that we want to show up for our friends in a way that we're proud of. Yeah. And we want a good relationship with not only the people around us, but the, the things that we consume, even if we don't consume them, right? Like 
alcohol is still a part of your life, even if you're not consuming it, because your spouse might be consuming it, or you're in social environments people are consuming, and you still need a positive relationship with that so that you can maintain that positive relationship. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think everyone's base level, base relationship starting point with alcohol is different, but Mm -hmm. I think for me, I wouldn't have been able to be around people who drank or, you know, even understand like what my, why my relationship with alcohol was unhealthy had I not stopped completely. And I think that that can look different for, for everyone. Well, Sarah, I really appreciate your perspective and I just want to thank you for sharing it. Um, I'm going to share a link in the show notes to your book. Who is the ideal reader for you? Who, I mean, I, I, everyone should read it, but who is the, who, who do you hope reads it? Who do you hope yeah. it impacts? I really think that there's something in this book for everyone. Um, I think, yes, it speaks to my relationship with alcohol, why I got sober, how my life changed in sobriety. But I also talk about my relationship with social media, wellness, culture, relationships, startups, career, um, so I think that there's, you know, food, body image, there's something in this book for, for a lot of young people. I think probably women will identify, uh, the most just because that's my, that's, that's who I am. And that's, I speak to, to those experiences, but I've gotten really beautiful messages from like 80 year old men who have really resonated with the book. Aww. So I think that there's something in it for, um, for every reader. I think parents can read it and, and maybe relate to their kids on a different level, Um, and yeah, if you do read my book, I'd love to hear how you liked it. And, um, I'm so glad that we got to, to connect. This was such a great conversation. So thank you. Me too, Sarah. Her book is drinking games, a memoir. It is published by St. Martin's press came out this year. And as I mentioned in the beginning, it has been the most sensitive book by good morning, America, New York post, pure wow, Buzzfeed, Los Angeles time book, right? Apple books. Congrats on all of your success, Sarah. I hope it continues to do well. And, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the ask a matchmaker podcast. Where thanks can people find me. you on social media, by the way? Oh, you can find me on Instagram at Sarah L Levy. I also have a Substack, sarahlevy.substack.com that I update every week with essays, interviews, recommendations, and you can always send me an email, sarah at sarahlevy.com. Amazing. I'm going to include all of those links in the show notes. Thank you again for joining me on the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not go give it a five-star review? Also, if you want to join me in Tulum, we have a couple spots left for our Agape Intensive Retreat. That's our women's retreat that happens in Mexico uh, in November. Details are in the show notes for that retreat. Be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. See you next week.